Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hey guys, this is Russ and this is The Overlook. Today we're going to get into the disappearance of Brandon Graves. Brandon Rodriguez Graves is a 36-year-old African-American male missing from South Carolina. Brandon was working as a football trainer for Coastal Carolina University at the time of his disappearance. He was a member of the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity and he had no criminal record or any criminal associations. He was well liked in his community and no one could think of anyone that could possibly be his enemy. Brandon is described by loved ones as being a very good natured and outspoken person. His brother said that he was extremely friendly and he made a friend out of every person he met. Now, Brandon was last seen in Sumter, South Carolina on January 30th, 2010. He was 24 years old at the time when he decided to go on this unplanned trip to Morris College homecoming. On that night of January 30th, Brandon and his friends decided to go to this club in Sumter called Sebastian's Nightlife. This was around 11 p.m. But not even an hour after arriving, Bouncer seen that Brandon had become unruly and extremely intoxicated. They asked him to leave. When asked to leave, Brandon, he left the club, but it does appear that he tried to return at some point in time. It is caught on surveillance, him being escorted off the property by a bouncer. Now, witnesses have said that Brandon may have gotten to a white car and went to another club, but no one has really been able to confirm this. But many witnesses have been able to confirm the last they saw him, he was at least talking to somebody in this white car. Brandon's friends were the last people to lay eyes on him, but they said they looked away from him for a second and couldn't figure out where he went and he just disappeared. Some sources state that police, they have an idea who this person was and they've actually talked to them. Whatever the case, the person has actually never been named. And if a WIS-TV source is correct, it's a man in Clarendon County, South Carolina. Around 3.30 a.m., 4.30 a.m., we do know that Brendan is still alive. He had actually called a friend and one of his cousins, leaving voice messages that no one could really understand. Actually, when they woke up and heard the messages, they just assumed he was rambling while drunk. But these voice messages is the last known time anyone has actually ever heard from him. Police were eventually able to gain access to Brandon's phone records, but were unable to determine where Brandon actually was when he made those two phone calls. Brandon had no known enemies. He had a very sweet demeanor. He was called peanut by friends and family because he was small in stature and he was the kind of guy that everybody kind of just got along with. Police could not figure out why anyone would want to cause him any harm, but foul play is suspected in his disappearance. So the next morning, a family friend, Maurice, calls Brandon's cousin because he was supposed to drive Brandon back home the next day, but he hadn't heard from him. And he called the cousin and informed him that, hey, 
I haven't heard from Brandon. I'm supposed to be driving him back home. Is he there? And the cousin let him know, no, he's not here. Now, his cousin Lamont then calls his friends that he was supposed to be out with that night. But the friends say they have not seen him, that he got kicked out the club. This is starting to cause a panic in his cousin. His cousin then calls his brother and informs him, hey, Brandon went out, he went to Sumter, he went out with some friends, but no one has heard or seen him. His ride is looking for him and he's not answering the phone. So his brother and his cousins go out there and they begin searching for him. They start talking to others who may have been at the bar and all parties pretty much said the same thing, that Brandon was at the bar and at some point he got kicked out from the bar. And then after that, stories start to get fuzzy. So there's stories of people seeing Brandon talk to someone in a white car. And that story is pretty consistent for the most part. However, that's when the story starts to deviate. In some stories, people say he got in this white car with this person, they drove off. There's also rumors that, no, Brandon went to another bar that night. But this, again, has never been confirmed. The family reached out to police that very same day they realized no one had heard from Brandon. Now, the next morning, more family members came down to search for Brandon. They first searched around the bar, but for some reason, the bar called police and stated that they did not want his family on the property. So police came out, asked the family to move. Police later say they talked to the bar owner and they were very cooperative and they handed over security video. However, this just seems very suspect because this was a family looking for a missing person. They weren't causing a ruckus from what I can tell. And it just seemed really insensitive for the bar to call the police and ask them to be removed. It wasn't during bar hours. It wasn't during a busy night. It wasn't during a time where they could have actually been scaring away customers or anything like that. So it just came off really insensitive. Now, five days after Brandon went missing, Sumter police began to cut duck searches on four-wheelers, cars, and foots, but the search came up empty. The police also searched at the second bar Brandon was rumored to head to, but again, they found no evidence that he was there or any crime was committed there. Family states on TV One's Find Our Missing that as they began to talk to people, they were made aware of a situation in the club that police really didn't dig too much into. There was talks of a possible altercation between Brandon and a possible staff member of that bar. Rumors were that Brandon had got hit by the staff member. Now, we have no surveillance of this. This is not something that was able to be confirmed. We do know on surveillance he is seen going off camera with a security guard alive, but then the video pretty much ends there in regards to him being on camera. Now, family members on this TV One show state that they were very suspicious about what happened after Brandon walked off with the security guard, but we do know he was alive because this happened shy of midnight and he called his cousin and his friend around 3.30, 30 a.m. So eventually the two friends that Brandon attended the club with were interviewed by police. They were asked to take a polygraph test and one did. He did with no problem, he passed the test, but the other friend refused. And some sources report that word that Brandon got into an argument with this very friend had came out. Actually that night, him and the friend that refused the polygraph test got into it before they went into the club. It is stated that this man showed up uninvited asking to stay with Brandon and some type of argument ensued, but it looks like they worked it out because they went to the club together. But 
no one is really sure. Again, this is one of those rumors that's floating around that haven't really been confirmed. It is said that this person is considered a person of interest in this case, but he is not named as a suspect. We actually do not have his name. Now, on the TV One episode, there is a name that they use. However, I am not going to use this young man's name because it's not officially linked to the case. So let's talk more about this friend that refused to take the polygraph test. Now, according to that TV One interview, Brandon's cousin called this friend and the cousin told him that, yo, if you don't know anything about Brandon, then there's no reason not to take the polygraph test. We just basically want to know where he is. And he says that the friend remained silent on the phone. Now, the police state they did talk to this friend several times and there has been no proof that he has any involvement. But Brandon's family is very suspicious as he remained silent on Brandon's case throughout this whole period and he has not even tried to help find Brandon in any capacity whatsoever. Now, Brandon's aunt called this man as well and Brandon, by the way, was raised by his aunt. This was his mother figure and she called this friend and said, even if you guys got into it and he accidentally bumped his head, please just tell me. Again, the family states that they were met with silence. Now, family, of course, they posted flyers. There were searches done. There were a couple articles and stories done at the time of his disappearance. And there were tips that came in. Actually, one tip was that Brandon was at a homeless shelter about 30 miles away. However, the police ran out there, checked it out, and it was not him. There were some other leads, but they all seem to have led to a dead end. There are rumors that keep popping up, but... Some of the rumors seem to be conflicting and none of the rumors seem to have led to any solid evidence that the police can use to officially name a suspect or really make any big movements in Brandon's case. March 12, 2010 came and went and there were still no signs of Brandon. Now, this date is special because this was Brandon's 25th birthday. Family mentioned how hard it was to celebrate this birthday without him, and no one knew where he was or what happened to him. Initially, police had dozens of leads in this case, but by April of that year, it seemed that they were back at square one. When Brandon left to go to the party, his family said he only had about $20 in his pocket. His uncle told reporters, I can remember it like it was yesterday, that my mom gave him $20 to go to Sumter. And that's all he had in his pocket, $20. So if somebody robbed him for $20, they didn't get very much. They got a really good person for $20. In April 2010, a $1,500 reward was raised for information in Brandon's disappearance. His disappearance stayed in the news over the years with articles and interviews every few years, but it seems no new details or leads have came forth. His family started a $1,000 scholarship in Brandon's name and has held balloon releasing ceremonies that not only raise awareness for Brandon's case, but they also incorporate other cases of missing people in the area. As of 2020, detectives state that they haven't been able to make any headway in his case. They did multiple searches and police said they have not come across any new evidence in all these years. Captain Robert Burner states, it's one of those you lay awake at night wondering, what did we miss? We checked the area behind the club, all around the club, everywhere. Nothing, it's just like he vanished. 
Brennan's family still hold out hope that he is alive somewhere, just waiting to be reunited with his loved ones. So let's talk about what I found on social media. Of course, I did a look around social media to see if anybody was talking about this case and what were they saying. Reddit actually had a thread on this case and there was actually a couple really good points made on this thread. One particular comment that really stood out to me and it was posted about four years ago by a user who claims to be from that area. Now, this user states that at that time, it was not uncommon for frats to boot pranks on fellow brothers or soon-to-be brothers by roofing them. This user states that she actually had an experience with this that resulted in a young man causing her some property damage. The user explains that she found this young man vomiting all over himself. He had caused some type of damage to her property and he was taken to a nearby hospital where he tested positive for rohypno. Now, this comment is very interesting to me because this would explain why Brandon appeared so drunk after only being at the club for not even an hour. Let's not forget, he was there with his frat brothers and they actually had just left some type of frat show. So it matches up with that whole theme of this is possibly a frat thing. Is it possible that Brandon was roofied? And maybe he wasn't roofied on purpose. He could have been completely accidental. They might have wanted to prank one of the newer guys who were still in college on the team and he somehow got the drink. Or maybe he was the intended target. His 3 to 4 a.m. calls could possibly be him trying to tell someone that he was somewhere lost, he blacked out, he didn't know where he was, and he felt weird. Now, users also suggest that it's possible that he then may have walked away with strangers, really quoting back to that white car that we hear come up in those rumors a lot, and something happened and they kind of just ditched him. Now, again, this is all speculation, but I thought that was a really interesting comment because when you read through this case, one of the first things you'll see people asking and people commenting is, how did he get so drunk in less than an hour? Because it's not noted that he was drunk before he got there whatsoever, but it's said that he had to be asked to leave by bouncers. And then we later know that hours later, he's still very drunk. He left the first club before midnight and he left the voice messages between 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. And during that time, we know on those voice calls that he still was very drunk. They could not understand what he was trying to say. It sounded like gibberish. And that would kind of make sense if he was roofy. When people are roofy, it can create a very overwhelming drunk feeling. A lot of times people who have been roofy have said that they felt extremely drunk really quickly, like way quicker than they should have been. They felt like they only had a drink, maybe two, but they felt like they had been drinking a bottle. And again, this is speculation, but I thought that was really interesting because that was one of the main things I kept thinking over in this case. How did he get so drunk? How is it that he went with his friends and he got so drunk? And it seems like he was the only one. Next, what we'll see on social media is the rumors that Brandon possibly got a ride over to this other bar called The Blue Mist. Now, Reddit users were able to pull up Yelp reviews from this spot from around the time he disappeared. Comments from back in 2010, 2011 talked about how dangerous that club was and how violent things happened at this club on what seems to be a regular basis. 
One comment saying that there was actually a murder in the parking lot of that club the very same year that Brendan disappeared. Now, I do want to say it should be noted you can no longer find this business page on Yelp. Again, this Reddit thread was from about four years ago, but you see people talking about it in this thread and people are going back and forth about the different comments they found on this Yelp page. So these rumors have people wondering, is it possible a very drunk Brandon found himself among the wrong crowd? Again, his family describes him as someone who never met a stranger because he makes friends with everybody. Is it possible a very drunk him was talking to someone made quick friends and due to him being drunk, not really realizing the people around him weren't that trustworthy or the area that he was in was not that trustworthy. Now, of course, also you have the speculation as something happened between Brandon and his friend that refused to take the polygraph test, that maybe something happened, it was a complete accident, and the friend panicked, tried to hit, hide his body, and remain mute since. And this honestly is a really strong rumor that you'll hear played up a lot when you look through the hashtags, when you search this case online. Now, you're also here about the guy in the white car, and if there was some type of foul play initiated with him, where did he take Brandon? We can't confirm that he actually went to the Blue Mist, though it's rumored. Did he take him there? Did he leave with him? Who is this person? And was this person ever confirmed? Because again, we do have some articles stating that, nope, this is a person, they confirmed, they've talked to him. And we have other articles that straight up say, and no one ever found out who this person was. Next, around social media, you'll find people wondering about the altercation that allegedly happened in the bar between Brandon and an alleged staff member of Sebastian's nightlife. Again, this is something we can't confirm, but people wonder if that altercation kind of followed him throughout the night. I mean, Sumter is a small place. It's not very big. Is it likely that whoever this altercation was with that after their bar closed, went to the other bar that Brennan allegedly was at. Could this have escalated? Could they have seen him walking, stumbling in the street? Maybe Brandon was trying to find his way back to the original area because you have to remember, he did not drive down there on his own. It's possible that he went off and maybe he went to another bar, maybe he hung out with some people and maybe he tried to come back to that area because that's where his ride was. And maybe he possibly had a run in with the same person who was at the bar the first time that there was alleged altercation with. Again, this is pure speculation, but you will see questions about that thrown around online. Next, you'll see people talking about his intoxication levels and just wondering if this was simply an accident, wondering if he fell victim to a hazardous situation due to being so drunk. A situation like possibly being hit by a car, falling into a ditch, etc. 
again, these are those questions that people are throwing out because we really don't have a lot of clues to go on. I mean, the last time he's seen on camera is just before midnight and we find out that his voice was heard at 3.30, 4.30 a.m. Though they can't understand what he's saying, it doesn't sound like he was in distress necessarily. It just sounded like he was very drunk and we don't know really what happened in between that time. And so just knowing that he left before midnight and was drunk and then at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., he was still drunk. It just has people wondering if he was too drunk to stay away from very dangerous situations that while sober, you know to stay away from. That's like walking in a road and not walking on the wrong side of town and things such as that. Now, let's get into these theories. So the first theory, which is that Rufy theory that we found on Reddit, Again, this is a possibility. It seemed he was extremely drunk and his drunkenness would make sense if he was roofy. Now look, according to verywellhealth.com, within 10 minutes of ingesting rohypnol, a person will begin to experience its initial effects, which is like nausea, feeling too hot or feeling too cold or feeling both at the same time, dizziness, confusion, and disorientation. They may also have trouble speaking, moving, and become socially inebriated. These effects would kind of make sense with the situation at hand. I mean, the drug makes people feel very intoxicated when they haven't drunk a lot. Is it possible this was a prank gone wrong, which is why people are afraid to come forward? We have to keep in mind, Brandon is very small in stature. Is it possible the prank went too far and he was given a mouth that was just way too potent for his small frame? This is an interesting theory, but we have to keep in mind, there is absolutely nothing that indicates that this happens. Someone threw it out there and it was a very interesting theory, but other than one person from the era saying that this is something they know that happens sometimes. There's really nothing connecting that theory to Brandon. We don't know if that's the same frat. We don't know if that was only one frat doing that in the area or if multiple frats did that. We don't know if that's a thing. Just because it happened to one person does not mean it would happen to Brandon. This is really one of those theories that's just randomly thrown out there that has no concrete tie to Brandon. But I still think it's interesting enough to mention. Theory two. The Blue Mist Bar Theory. Now, this theory, again, this is about him going to the Blue Mist Bar, this being a rough and tough type of crowd, this not being the safest place. I personally just don't think this is a likely scenario. From what I could find out online about this bar, it seemed like it was a very lively pace and I think they would have had some sort of confirmation if a rowdy situation happened involving branding that night at that bar. And what I mean by that is someone would be able to confirm that he was there. We have people saying, oh, we think he went there, but it doesn't look like anybody who was actually there at the bar was like, yeah, I saw him. He was here. If some type of rowdy situation happened at the bar, I would also think police would be called, more people would speak out about the situation. And it doesn't seem like anybody said any type of ruckus happened at that bar that night. Again, when we talk about the Yelp reviews, you have people commenting about this sort of thing. But again, that was not the night Brandon went missing. I just really think that if he was there and something popped off that we would have more confirmation, we would have more details about him being there besides people saying, yeah, I think that's where he was heading. Theory three, something happened between him and a friend that refused to take the polygraph test. 
Now, this is a theory I think holds a lot of weight, actually. While I've expressed my opinions on polygraphs tests in a couple different episodes, it's actually really considered quack science, especially in the legal field, and it's actually not admissible in many courtrooms around the country. So I'm not really big on taking polygraph answers or polygraph results seriously because there's no way to test if a person is lying. Reacting stressfully to an answer does not always correlate with lying. When you are in a high stakes situation, there's a lot of pressure and you know that your answers can result in possible jail time or you being looked at as someone suspicious. That can cause a lot of anxiety in folks. So again, I'm not big on polygraph tests. People who are actually professionals the field aren't big on polygraph tests. A lot of lawyers worth their salt will get results thrown out if the prosecutors or anybody tries to admit it in court. When you contact a lawyer and say, hey, I'm involved in this case, I need a lawyer, I need advice. One of the first things that lawyers will tell you is do not take the polygraph test. So it's not an admission of guilt to me. But I do think it's suspicious that this friend went radio silence on his family. This was not a stranger, this was his friend. This was a frat brother. This was someone his family knew. His family knew him well enough to give him a call. They knew his number, they knew his name. Yet, it's reported he has never once tried to help in this case in any way, not just taking the polygraphs, in any other way he has not tried to help. I think his reaction to the family is more suspicious than anything. And look, I'm really not sure how it works in male friend groups, but in female friend groups, there is a code. We make sure that when we go out, we don't leave each other. We're checking on each other throughout the night. We know where everyone is going. If one person decides, hey, I'm leaving, and the rest of the group wants to say, we check out, okay, how are you leaving? Where are you going? Call me when you get there. And look, it's very possible men just don't do these things. A lot of that women do out of a necessity, out of having to do that to keep ourselves safe. But it's odd to me that this friend didn't try to check on him the next morning to say, hey, you good? You make it home all right? Didn't try to check on him that night. Didn't reach out to family or anything. That to me is very odd. And then when news comes that he is missing, he does not reach out to his family at all. That is what I think is most suspicious. Something else I think is suspicious is that him and Brennan apparently had gotten into it before they went to this bar. And while it seems they probably worked things out because they went together or or at least were known to be hanging out there together, I want to know, did this fight linger? Was it completely done with when they left? Or was it one of those, like, we are already on our way out? We'll deal with this later. I'm not going to let you ruin my good time type of thing. To me, the biggest reason this theory holds weight is that he never checked on them. They went out together. He knew his friend got thrown out the bar. The family that very morning was down there talking to people, passing out flyers. Word had spread pretty fast that Brandon was missing and he did not contact family. Family didn't hear from him until they contacted him. And even then, he didn't give them any information. That is why I think this theory holds weight more than anything. Theory four, the white card theory. Now, again, in many sources, it actually appears that the police did find out who this man was in the white car, though there are sources, again, you will find where they say, and no one knows 
No one ever figured out who this person was. But if we go by the sources that say they figured out who this person was, we aren't given any information on what their conversation with this man was. Now, according to the sources that say they do have a name for this person, they say that they talked to this man, they've interviewed him more than once. Did Brendan get in a car with him? Did he drop Brendan off somewhere? What did they last talk about? Did he seem really drunk at that time? We don't know if any relevant information at all was given to the police. And we don't know if this person even just straight up denied talking to Brendan and I, even though multiple people have confirmed that they at least talked. Unfortunately, with this theory, there's just not enough public information to come to any type of full conclusion. Theory five, the altercation theory. Could Brendan have been followed or later confronted by whoever he had an issue with in the bar? Possibly, but again, we know Brendan was at least alive until 4 a.m. That's the last time we have a voice message from him. He left the Sebastian bar before midnight. That would mean someone had to spend at least four plus hours following him or that someone just had the luck of running into him four plus hours later. And while that can definitely happen, especially in small towns and small areas, there's usually not a lot of club places and a lot of options to go to. You usually have your just handful of bars. So that's not unlikely that they could possibly run into each other. But here's the thing. We aren't even 100% sure an altercation happened. Again, this is one of those rumors that not everybody agrees on. Not everybody agrees that this ever even happened. Theory six. Brandon was too drunk to keep himself safe from common dangers. Now, this is a theory that he was drunk and possibly walking in the street, got hit by a car, fell in a ditch. And yes, that's a possibility. It's always a possibility when dealing with someone that wanders off. But there's really no evidence supporting this. It does seem that Brandon was highly intoxicated. However, we have to remember there's never been a body found. We actually don't know if Brandon is alive or deceased. And if he is deceased, I would think if it was something like falling into a ditch and stumbling in the street or something like that, a body would have been found by now. Several searches were conducted, not just by police, but also by his family members. And police actually got in cars, dogs, on foot and on four wheelers. And I would think ditches would be one of those areas that could have been covered pretty well. We have to remember he was on foot. He didn't have a car or anything. There's only so much ground as a drunken person that you can cover walking. I believe the area that he would have been able to walk to would have definitely been covered by all the searches. This theory only makes sense if foul play was involved when we're talking about keeping yourself safe from common dangers, such as getting hit by a car and someone panicking and thinking, oh, I have to get rid of the body, something like that. That's the only way this theory makes sense. And again, we have no evidence that points to that. 37. Could Brandon be alive? Still wandering the streets? Now, this is always possible. We've seen this actually happen in cases, but it doesn't seem likely unless something happened to permanently alter Brandon's memory. Think about it. At the time that Brandon disappeared, he had recently graduated from college. He had recently got a job that he absolutely loved. He was very close with his family. He drove back home every Sunday for church. 
this is not someone who is just going to get up and walk away on their own and not leave any type of clue, any type of evidence. And one regular drunken night is not going to lead to that type of permanent memory loss. We have to keep in mind, he was drunk, he was on foot. He could only wander to so many places on foot before someone would have noticed him. We know he was alive, he was talking on the phone at 4 a.m. and his family was out there that very morning. Now, I don't have an exact time from when in the morning, but you know, we know he was alive at 4 a.m. and morning ends at 11.59 a.m. So that's not a lot of time in between where his family was there covering ground themselves on foot and in car. I find it highly unlikely that if he was just so inebriated and still wandering the streets that one of them wouldn't have crossed paths with him or his family didn't cross paths with someone who was like, hey, yeah, I saw a guy with dread, small dude, walking around stumbling on 5th Street or whatever. I think if that was the case, we would have more concrete evidence of him being alive past 4 a.m., but we do not. And of course, we can go deeper into the theory of, okay, but maybe he hitchhiked and maybe he did this and that. But honestly, that just leads to a rabbit hole of endless possibilities that, yes, could be possible, but we have not a shred of evidence connecting us to that theory. And the police had a lot of leads in the beginning. It's just they leads dried up and they weren't ever able to get to any concrete evidence. What they have said is they do believe foul play was involved. And usually police don't say that. At least they have some type of evidence pointing them in that direction. I think they do. I just don't think they've released whatever that is to the public. So after reading all the articles and listening to all the videos I can find on this and reading every thread I can find on this case, I'm still left with a couple of questions. The first question being is, did Brandon text anybody that night? Now, we know police got access to his phone records, but it's never mentioned if they were able to get his text logs and see who he was texting, if he had called anybody else. We don't really know what they got from his phone records, and I'm really curious to know. We just know that they weren't able to get location, but he was a 24-year-old guy who was drunk there's got to be drunk calls to other people. There has to be a drunk text to somebody else during that night. And I'm just wondering if police were able to get that and if they were able to kind of follow up on those leads and if that led them to any kind of conclusion or idea or theory that they're working on. Another reason why I'm really wondering about his like text messages is because, again, he got kicked out of the bar, a bar that he went to with friends. His friends were still in the bar. To me, it would make sense that at some point he would text them like, hey guys, I'm heading over to blank, blank, blank with blank, blank, blank. That might just be my brain because usually that's how it works with girl code. Usually you'll send a text and this was 2010. So yeah, sending a text was a normal part of communication. And we don't really know if he ever sent a text to anybody to say, hey, I'm heading over here or anything else. Also, I want to know if those voice messages, if they were able to retrieve those voice messages. I kept looking and I kept re-listening to videos of his family talking about the case and I kept trying to see if anyone mentioned if these voice messages were saved or if this was a matter of they woke up in the morning, saw it, was like, oh my gosh, I deleted it and then later realized he was missing and was like, yo, he left me a voice message. I deleted it because it didn't make sense. Um, and the reason why I asked this is because one, the police can 
always ask the FBI to step in on a case. And the FBI, they definitely have tools that they can use that are better at um, interpreting like destroyed audio and picking up on disturbed messages and things such as that. And so I'm wondering if they ever try to have any type of program to interpret what he was saying. If anything of help was said in those messages, anything of like, yeah, man, I'm on... 49th Street, I just woke up, I don't know where I am, or, and then there was this girl, and I don't know where she is, or anything like that, but we don't know. What we do know is that the police said initially there was dozens, what a S, of leads and tips that they had, but by April, it seemed like nothing led to anything concrete, and then it just fizzled out, nothing. As of now, Brandon Graves is still considered missing, and his case is still an active case. If anyone has any information on Graves' disappearance, I ask that you contact the Sumter County Sheriff's Office at 803-436-2000 or contact Crime Stoppers South Carolina tip line, which is 888-CRIME-SC, which is also 888-274-6372. They also text their Crime Stoppers line at 274637 or simply the word crime. Crime Stoppers do ask that if you text begin the message with the word tip SC, SC as in South Carolina. That is all that I have for today. Be safe, be vigilant, and I'll have a new episode next Sunday. worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply